This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by AT&T Business, keeping your business connected today and building it for tomorrow with 5G on America's best network. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang joined the Washington Post to discuss the historic Biden-Harris ticket and the future of the Democratic Party. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Michelle Norris, columnist for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us for this lunchtime conversation. I am so pleased to be joined by Andrew Yang, former Democratic candidate and president and founder of Humanity Forward. That's a nonprofit that's pushing for universal basic income or UBI. Andrew, it is great to have you with us as part of Washington Post Live. It's great to be here, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So we've all spent the past few evenings um, sitting in front of some kind of screen, watching the events, uh, the Democratic National Convention, watching them in real time. Many of us who would normally be inside that big convention hall. What are your overall impressions so far? I think it's been really impressive how the team has adapted to the medium. I mean, not everything has worked, but it's extraordinarily challenging to fill eight hours of television programming, as I'm sure, sure anyone who's in the industry knows. Uh, and there have been more successes than not, I think in, in large part because the Democratic Party has uh, some folks that Americans really are excited to hear about and hear more about. I mean, last night was focused on Jill Biden and uh, their family story, which was, I thought, really well done and compelling. Uh, I thought the Addie Barkan video last night was also very, very powerful. Uh, and that sentiment for many Democrats and Americans alike hit home around the fact that our healthcare system's failures have been front and center for all of us during this pandemic. Uh, and healthcare was a contentious topic during the primary, the fact that the video said very, very clearly healthcare uh, should be accessible to anyone, regardless of employment status or ability to pay, will make many, many Americans look up and say, wait, who do I trust more on healthcare, uh, Democrats or Republicans? And it's an issue that Americans care deeply about and that Democrats have a huge advantage on. You know, conventions are normally big, loud, circus-like events, the, the hats, the patriotic colors, the sequins, the spangle, we don't necessarily equate them with intimacy, but that's what we're getting this year, yes? So a message like that, it hits the the ear and maybe even the heart in a different way because you don't have all that pageantry. I expected to be in Milwaukee too. I mean, a a lot of us did, Uh, but I think that they've done the really a remarkable job with a new format in a different situation. There were people talking about how the roll call yesterday was an improvement. It was an upgrade because ordinarily you go around the convention hall and there are people saying Idaho, Illinois, and then now it's like beaming into different states and you got a glimpse of uh, different backdrops, different people, different ways of life, which I did on the presidential trail too. So it was actually, because I felt like um, like I knew a good number of those places and in some cases the people. Um, so that actually felt like an upgrade or an improvement. And so they're making the best of it. As you said, Michelle, that there is an intimacy. The intimacy works better for some people than others, honestly. I mean, that, that's a tough part because if yeah. you stick yeah. a lot of people in front of a crowd, then uh, it works for a higher proportion of speakers. <laughs> There's an energy <laughs> that you draw. Yeah, then, then it is. And I've I've spoken 
obviously in this time, we've all spoken to a screen a whole lot, um, and but I've also spoken to crowds. They're very, very different things. They come across differently, and some will be helped or hurt by it more than others. But we could spend an entire half hour critiquing the sea to shining sea roll call that we saw last night. I mean, who knew that calamari was the state food of Rhode Island? Um, it was interesting to see how people used that 15 to 20 seconds they got, sometimes to send an important message about the campaign. But I want to move later into the evening and talk about some of the other speakers, and in particular, um, AOC. Uh, you were critical that um, she was not given uh, as much time as perhaps she should have been given. Um, what do you, you think about how she used her time and where they eventually landed in, in asking her to participate in the convention? So she was asked to nominate Bernie, which I thought she did very effectively, but I thought that was a misuse of AOC, uh, particularly if you're not deeply versed in the mechanics of conventions and politics where you tune in, because many, many young people, I believe, were tuned in expressly to see her and then just have her uh, talk about Bernie's campaign was the opposite of what you'd want, frankly. Um, now, not her fault. Like, yeah, to me, it's the DNC's fault. It's just a missed opportunity where if you have someone who speaks to so many people, what you want her to do is to talk uh, more broadly about what the nominee is going to mean, what this election is going to mean, get people motivated and energized. Uh, so I just thought it was a missed opportunity. And she is one of the people that can cut through this medium and deliver a message very powerfully. And so I feel like the, the DNC just um, just missed one on that. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, people are savvy enough to understand that that there were uh, things at play that sort of constrained AOC in both time and message. Um, but I think she's capable of doing a whole lot more for the party than she was given an opportunity to last night. Now, she signaled that, you know, she's on board. She will support the Biden-Harris ticket. Um, but she pledged her loyalty to Bernie Sanders last night and also signaled that she will continue to push the party um, on the issues that she thinks are, are most important. She's not alone in her rather lukewarm reception of, of this ticket. Um, later this month, Marianne Williamson, uh, former Senator Mike Gravel, will speak at what they're calling the People's Convention, where attendees will consider the possibility of a third-party candidacy, not this year, but in 2024. Do you think, even though they're talking about 2024, that it might have a potential impact on the enthusiasm for this ticket in 2020? I, I talked to an activist, and I think that activist has the approach that many, many Americans do on that side, uh, folks who were excited for Bernie, let's say, uh, which is they're going to vote for Joe and Kamala, um, but they want to see real results and real change during this administration. And if they don't see those results, then they'll have to figure out another way to go. I don't think that's... Uh, that unreasonable, frankly, because that we, we need major changes. And if we get them uh, in the next number of months and years under Joe and Kamala, fantastic. Uh, and I think that's the spirit of what they're saying. Um, and, it, and you do need to continue to make your case for whatever priorities and policies that, that you want to see. I mean, I champion universal basic income, which now 55% of Americans are for. 
uh, and I'll continue fighting for that. And I'm optimistic that Joe and Kamala will be very serious about that, particularly because Kamala has actually proposed a version of cash relief that's very ambitious during this pandemic. Uh, so uh, to me, that's actually a very reasonable course to take. And the Democratic Party needs to realize that at this point, independents outnumber either registered Democrats or Republicans, uh, and that party registrations are going down, not up. Uh, so we need to reform our democracy. We need to have ranked choice voting and a higher degree of political dynamism rather than having more and more Americans feel like there's a party that is supposed to speak for everyone, but it actually ends up uh, speaking for the, let's call it 28, 29% uh, of Americans who are registered to that party, perhaps. And, <laughs> and even then, you might see a subset of that group. Uh, we need to fix the mechanics of our democracy if people are going to feel like their view is truly being represented. Even in this case where people think, hey, I'm gonna vote for Joe because I can't stand Trump and this is a catastrophe, but like, is this really voting my heart or conscience or, or whatever it is? I mean, please do vote for Joe and Kamala. Like, don't be an idiot. <laughs> but, but uh, but I understand the, the, the feeling of uh, frustration, and we need to amend our democracy so that it includes more points of view uh, and allows for greater uh, dynamism. I mean, it should not take someone like me running for president to get universal basic income on the table. But, our, you know, and I understand that you're talking about fixing the mechanics of democracy, and that's something that is uh, a long-term effort um, based on an election that is less than 90 days away now. Are you sympathetic to the worry that talk of a third party candidacy might tamp down enthusiasm for the task at hand, which is trying to get voters enthusiastic and fully engaged in supporting the ticket um, that's at the center of the convention, the Biden-Harris ticket? Well, you, you have to see what the message is uh, from the that group. I have a strong sense that many of them will say, look, let's get Trump out of there. I mean, and if that, uh, message is there, then I wouldn't be concerned, um, uh, especially because they're not talking about this cycle. They're talking about four years from now, and we have to face facts that we're in the midst of a crisis right now. The house is burning in the form of tens of thousands of lives and tens of millions of jobs, uh, and we need action right now. It's one reason why, to me, it is very reasonable to say, look, if Joe and Kamala don't get uh, big things done, then we need to start looking for uh, another course of action. So you had taken your disple displeasure to social media. You had tweeted that you were um, unhappy that the DNC had not reached out to you and, and, and asked you to participate in the convention with a speaking role. That changed. I don't know if it was your tweet or your phone calls or whatever um, got them to change their mind, but they did, and you now are on the agenda. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what might have happened there? Uh, my my exact tweet was I kind of expected to speak, <laughs> so, so it wasn't like you know, right. and, and that was just very honest. It was like I kind of expected to be on the docket, guys, um, and, and they uh, they said, hey, look, uh, that was just a preliminary list. People are getting added, and you're on the docket. Don't worry about it. And then I said, oh, okay, great. Uh, now was that in part a reaction to the fact that it seemed like many people um, were excited to see me? I mean, perhaps, I, I don't know. But uh, however it happened, I'm thrilled to be speaking tomorrow night, uh, very excited to address the American people. And I'll make the case for Joan Kamala. Look, we need to change the leadership. 
we need to give ourselves a chance to dig out of this hole that we're in. And it's going to be uh, very easy for me because uh, I, I uh, like and admire Joe and Kamala a great deal and believe they must win for our country to have a real chance to get on a better track. Uh, will this be a live or taped speech? And can you give us any kind of preview of what you might be saying? Um, it's going to be live and it's going to be tremendous. It's going to be scintillating. Uh, it, so it's going to be live and lit. Live and lit. Live and lit. That's right. Tune in. 9 p.m. tomorrow. It, it, I, so I can say, like, I'm, I'm on at 9 p.m. Uh, tomorrow to open up the program. Now, you've mentioned that um, that universal basic income has grown in popularity since you first introduced this this to us, and um, we now have a better understanding of what it is, and many more people are embracing this. Do you think that this is something that will be embraced by uh, the Harris, uh, the Biden-Harris ticket? Oh, I, I think we're going to be uh, in a deep, dark hole for quite some time, and people are looking around saying, we need to get money into people's hands. Like, you know, the cash stimulus worked, the enhanced unemployment benefits worked, and if you look up, you're going to see that a version of cash relief has 74% support at this point, majority of both parties. It's common sense. Every economist is looking up and saying, wow, like the, the cash measures were one of the key pillars in keeping our families and communities and economy afloat. So I think there's going to be a version of cash relief on the table in 2021. Uh, I believe it will pass. And then I believe people will see that a version of universal basic income is a must. Uh, and uh, that's going to be driven by circumstances that are tragic and devastating. Um, but yes, uh, I, I think this is going to be a front and center policy discussion, in part because uh, it's bipartisan and universal in, in its appeal, where again, 74% of Americans might as well be 95% in 2020. I mean, can you think of something else that 74% of Americans are for <laughs> at this point? Also, 72% of Americans think this is the worst time they've ever lived in our uh like lifetimes. And that, that's one reason why Democrats have such a great chance to make a powerful case because no one wants to sign up again for a status quo that you think is the worst ever. Well, in making that case, though, there's one area where the Democrats seem to be struggling. The polls show that Donald Trump still has an advantage when it comes to economic issues. Um, with rising unemployment, rising levels of uh, rising numbers of people who are being evicted, um, people who are trying to figure out how to juggle teaching the kids at home and holding on to their their job that they're doing from the kitchen table or the coffee table instead of heading off to work. You know, all of these are are issues that are at play at every income level. And yet the Democrats' message around the economy still seems to be a little bit fuzzy. Um, how do they fine tune that message? I think they should lean into cash relief myself. <laughs> I think they should say, and it and this isn't hypothetical. I mean, Kamala, Bernie, and Ed Markey have proposed a two thousand dollar a month bill in the Senate. Uh, Tim Ryan, Ro Khanna, uh, and thirty eight co sponsors have proposed a similar emergency money for the People Act in the House. So to me, that's a no brainer, uh, and I, I think that would be a very very clear and powerful message for the American people that look if you want real help in your hands, vote for Joe and Kamala. And Kamala's on the record. Uh, she had, even while, when we were on the trail, uh, had a very ambitious, aggressive, uh, enhanced EITC plan that would put $500 a month into the hands of millions of families. So she's uh, essentially 
consistent that getting money to people's hands is a very good and positive thing. And I think that the Republican advantage on the economy to, to me is evaporating daily because they're presiding over the collapse of small businesses and economic activity in towns around the, the country. Uh, and no, no one's going to think like, wow, we need Trump uh, back in charge, in my opinion, uh, to help manage the, this uh, coronavirus crisis because he's just done such a bad job on so many levels. So I, I'd, I'd be very, uh, I'd be very skeptical that that people who want the economy safeguarded are going to go towards Trump. The distinction you have to make is the economy and the stock market. Um, if you're just just going for stock market prices, then maybe because uh, you know the stock market's done quite well because we're in this extreme winner-take-all economy where Amazon can just go to the moon even while the rest of us suffer. Uh, but that that also doesn't concern me that much because uh, the um, bottom 80% of Americans own 8% of stock market wealth. I mean, you're really just talking about the top 20%. Um, which prob they probably have pronounced visibility in, in our media landscape, like the, the top 20%. But, uh, but I, I don't think it's going to be a critical mass of people that choose Trump on the economy, personally. But for those the, the moderate Republican voter that might be an a la carte voter, they might look past the pandemic, which is hard to imagine, but they might. They might look past, um, you know, the, the racially insensitive comments. They might, you know, hashtag racially insensitive, or you know, put that in quotation marks, what they would call racially insensitive comments that other people would just see as plain racism. They might look past that and look at um, something like UBA and say, there they go again, giving away money. It's another entitlement. Might that be the kind of thing that will wind up repelling those moderate voters that are starting potentially to drift into the Democratic camp in this election cycle? You had Republicans taking credit for putting money into people's hands in April. You know, <laughs> it's not like, oh, Money's going to hurt you. I mean, that, that's like a, you know, I, millions of Americans who got the $1,200 check were like, this is great. I love it. Let's do more of this. Uh, I think that if votes are counted uh, in a way that we can all trust, Trump is going to lose. I've talked to many Trump voters. 42% of my supporters said they might not be able to support the Democratic nominee, and many of them were former Trump supporters. Uh, they, they voted for Trump on a you know, and a number of issues, but one of the consistent threads was they just don't think that our government's responsive to them. And Trump, unfortunately, has not like made good on the anti-corruption stance that that he had, and a lot of his voters know it. Uh, a lot of his voters actually uh, thought he was serious when he said he was going to drain the swamp. And then it turns out when he was not serious, they were starting to uh, change their minds. And then this pandemic has cemented their shift. So uh, I, I believe that uh, if the vote is counted in a way that we can all trust, that Joe's going to win significantly. Um, and it's, it's a large part because I talked to many of those moderates that you're describing, Michelle, uh, that voted for Trump and had regrets. So you, when you say that 42% of, of your supporters have said that they they are still lukewarm about voting for Joe Biden, that they, they might not support him, how do you close the deal with them? How do you make the case to them when you speak tomorrow night? Well, that's one of the, my jobs tomorrow night. But to be clear, that 42% was back in January. So I have a feeling that it's gone down a lot. <laughs> that, that was back. A lot has happened since January. 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm sure at this point, a lot of them are like, all right, let's let's get on board with um, with Joe and Kamala. Uh, but I, I'm going to make the case tomorrow night. Look, uh, we have to give ourselves a chance. Uh, you know, I'm I'm going to uh, paint a picture as to just how bad it is for many of us, and it is dark. This is this is truly the darkest time any of us has ever seen. Uh, and you have to ask yourself, how are we going to get out of this mess? And signing up for four more years of Trump is uh, is like a completely uh, irrational <laughs> way to try and get out of this mess because people sense that uh, he's not a leader who's going to be trying to utilize our government uh, to solve many of the problems we see. So it, it's going to be a very easy case for me to make, honestly, because uh, it's so near and dear to what I ran on, um, and it's consistent with what many, many most, in my opinion, Americans are thinking right now. Most Americans are looking around saying, I cannot believe what is happening uh, in our country, and what are we going to do? There, there's like a, a real piece of this, I think, Michelle, where people just want to get to know Joe and Kamala, which I think the first two nights have been very effective at getting people uh, to know Jill, which you know feels like you know Joe at this point, and I, I know I don't like I met Jill on the trail. She comes across exactly as she did last night. I mean, she really is like that super uh, teacher educator figure that I feel like every town has that we all love. Um, that as soon as people remember uh, some of the uh, better periods in our past <laughs> that that preceded Trump. We're like, oh, wait, like, you know, I don't need to worry about a daily controversy or politics being so exhausting all the time. Um, I, I believe that we'll be on track to turn this page in our country's history. So we'll learn a lot about Kamala Harris tonight, Senator Harris, when she takes the stage. Um, personal question for you. She She's making history as the, the first woman of color to be nominated uh, as a, a major party's vice presidential candidate. You were um, you made some history yourself as the first uh, Asian American man to run for president. What does was what does that the historic nature of of this ticket mean for you to have a woman um, on on the ballot now who is uh, multiracial? Um, she brings with her a black heritage, a Jamaican heritage, a South Asian heritage, a Brahmin background going back to India. She's in a blended family. Um, she's bi-coastal. Uh, there, there's a lot to her identity that we haven't seen in the sort of white picket fence picture or tableau of American presidents or vice presidents over many years. Kamala has an incredibly inspirational personal story, uh, and she represents, in my mind, some of the best elements of the American experience, where you can grow up the child of immigrants and become attorney general and senator from California, now vice presidential nominee, and in my opinion, our next vice president. Uh, so there, there are many Americans who are going to get to know her tonight and thrill to the, the fact that uh, someone of her background can become our next vice president. Uh, and what I said last night was like, you can do it in one generation and that's the promise of America. That was one of the promises of my run too. And, and I'm very, very gratified that many Asian Americans uh, have said to me that my campaign raised their sights as to what we can do and, and be in this country, um, that we can run for president, we can uh, serve in, in different leadership roles and capacities 
and that we're just as American as anyone else. Uh, that's a message that many people are waiting to hear, and I think Kamala is an ideal messenger tonight. You, you also warned, though, the Democratic Party that it was in danger of being perceived as an urban party or the party of the educated elite. Um, are, are you at all concerned about that as you're watching the convention? I think the... Uh, uh, I think the concern is alleviated in large part by who Joe Biden is, really. I mean, like J Joe Biden comes across as the guy he is, which he like grew up in Scranton and uh, has um, lived a life that many, many Americans can relate to, Jill as well. Uh, and so to me, he helps address that. I think it's one reason why he's our nominee, frankly, is that many Americans felt comfortable with Joe. Uh, but I do, to your point, think, uh, and this was borne out by my experiences on the trail, where I'd say, I'm a Democrat, and then people would literally, like, act like I, I just said, like, I'm from the, I don't know, Slytherin party. I was very geeky, whatever. <laughs> just something very, very negative. And I'd be like, what? Like, you know, why, why do you have such a distaste for Democrats? You're a truck driver. You're a waitress. You're... Uh, a retail clerk, and it really struck me, Michelle, on the trail. I was like, wow, Democrats have really done a very bad job of making many Americans feel like we are fighting for them. Uh, they think we're fighting for people other than them or against them in some uh, in some way. And it breaks my heart because if we're not standing up for the trucker or the waitress or the retail clerk, then who who are we standing up for? And uh, and it, but are and you it seeing does... enough of that? Are you seeing, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but are you seeing the trucker, the waitress, the retail cook? Are you seeing that person represented? We saw that, for instance, in the roll call from Ohio, but is that a central message? Is that a central character at the convention? I, I thought that was what night one, like the small business owner was meant to represent, uh, you know, and I, I think that they, they've had uh, people from different walks of life that have included that, uh, you know, in the roll call and, and otherwise. Um, would I like to see more of that? Yeah, I would. I know it's like, uh, like I spoke to a group of small business owners for the DNC yesterday. And when I talk to small business owners around the country, a lot of them uh, don't think Democrats have their back at all. Uh, they think that Democrats are out to make running a small business uh, harder and more expensive. And that also makes me very sad because I was a small business owner and running a small business is very, very hard. And a lot of them are not making money and so they're they're working their hearts out trying to make money and then when we walk around like they're uh made of money and you know need to do all the stuff they're looking up like wait a minute like my bar breaks even on a good month or whatever it happens to be uh so that so those are messages i think that the democrats need to take up with more uh, diligence and attention and what I, what I said in my commentary before was that democrats have this tendency to have a message out there. And then if you don't like the message, then it's like, well, it's your fault. There's something wrong with you. And I think that's what a lot of the folks that I met on the trail have picked up on, where there's like this patronizing element to a lot of what we say and do. Uh, and it's hurting us and it's wrong. It's unproductive. It's a great way to not win. I mean, like you can put, put any, <laughs> any motivation you want, but to me, uh, it's, a massive missed opportunity uh, to allow folks um, to convey messages around what's in someone's self-interest in like a different way that ends up hurting us all. You know, like like there are very effective Republican messages around um, some of these issues that, uh, if you look at them from one angle, you're like that that's that's against people's interests, but they're just doing a much better job selling it. 
And so, like, you know, if you look at it, say, okay, like, whose fault is this? Like, maybe it's our fault for not figuring out how to make our arguments and policies more appealing to the everyday American. So listening to you um, give what sounds like very good advice to the DNC and to the Biden-Harris ticket, does Andrew Yang foresee a role for himself in a potential Biden-Harris administration? And what might that be? If I have an opportunity to address some of the things I ran on, I, I would jump at that opportunity. You know, I, I'm I'm a problem solver and just want to help. Uh, certainly, if it's on universal basic income, my organization, Humanity Forward, has already distributed $8 million directly to the American people. Thank you, everyone who's donated. Really appreciate it. Uh, so anything around that, that set of issues and helping transition to the economy of the 21st century, I would be very excited about. Um, helping speed us up on technology issues. We're decades behind the curve on technology, and it is, it is threatening to tear us apart in terms of our trust in democracy, mental health of our children, especially now because we're all bombarding them with screens all day long, probably. At least that's what's happening in my household, you know, a little insight. I mean, any screen time restrictions you have, it's sort of hard to manage when they're literally right just like the staring all day. <laughs> the rest of it, it's like, what are you going to do? Um, but 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 that that has real impacts on our kids, and the studies are clear, particularly for teenage girls, that you're seeing surges in anxiety and depression um, that are tied to smartphone adoption and social media use. Uh, the selling and reselling of our data—we're talking about 200 billion dollars a year made on our data that we're not seeing a dime of. Like, does that make sense to everyone? Uh, so these are issues that I'd love to help address in a Biden-Harris administration if they give me that opportunity. Andrew, unfortunately, we're out of time. We could spend another half hour just talking about the, the use of data, the reselling of data, and the data dividend. And so we hope that you will come back and talk to us again. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we appreciate the time. We're looking forward to having you back again at Washington Post Live. Thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure. Tune in tonight and tomorrow. Let's move this country forward. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.